My name is Sarah Rojors. We'll be talking with Sandra Hernandez Lemheli, Executive Director of Latinos Unidos Siempre, or LUS. We're going to be talking about how LUS came into being, its mission and activities, and current issues LUS is working on, particularly in the Salem-Kaiser School District. Welcome, Sandra. Hi, Sarah. Thank you for having me as well. Sandra, before we delve into some of the pressing issues Luce is working on, it would be good to have you talk to us about what Luce is and how it came into being. Luce came into existence in 1986 when a group of youth, uh, youth of color in the San district, came together to combat the systemic oppression that they were facing within their schools, the criminal justice system, and also uh, with the immigration system. So during this time, black and brown youth were facing sort of a stop and frisk policy created under these two institutions, the criminal justice system and the uh, public education system that would allow police to stop young people based on how they looked and what they wore and what tattoos they had labeling this a game prevention tactic. So this is how loose came to be. And was that mainly in Salem or was that also taking place in Kaiser? This tactic was mainly being driven by uh, Salem Police Department, I believe, uh, but it was affecting students in the entire Salem Kaiser School District um, and young people who were not in school as well. And what age group are the youth who join loose? The age group currently, we have youth who are or as young as 11 years old and up to 25 years old, and even older uh, youth and um, staff who are working uh, with young leaders in the community. But everybody who is currently um, involved with LUCE, even as paid staff, is under under 30 years old, really. So LUCE has been in existence since 1996. How long have you been involved and what got you personally interested in LUCE? As a staff, I've been involved for six years now, uh, but I became involved as a youth around eight years ago. I became personally interested in the overall makeup of LUCE, and it is a youth-led program, and to me that was really amazing. It is led by young people of color, and we all came together to combat the different system, uh, systemic issues that impact us. And uh, during this time, I remember we were knocking on doors for Measure ADA to get a uh, driver's license card for people who did not have an immigration status. And more importantly, I was also pulled in by the youth who I work with who taught me so much and have given me the strength to keep on fighting. Because, again, we're all from the same – we're all from the community. This is a very local – organization uh, and a lot of the youth who are currently loose have been pushed out of the public education system and pulled into the criminal justice system and I saw myself and my own family's experience reflected in in the youth. How has loose's mission and activities changed over time? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, our mission to create spaces for the leadership development of youth to organize for political and social change has really remained the same. Uh, we also put so much of our focus on educational, cultural, and political development of youth. I think more than anything, the movement that LUZ began in 1996 has transformed into a more intersectional movement where we fight for the different issues that impact low-income, immigrant, trans, and queer black and brown communities. 
Um, I think our current leadership is very openly clear, and perhaps due to the times, this differs from the past. And at least we strongly believe that social justice movements should not be stagnant, that we should continue to transform in order to make true change. And so our leadership should be representative of the issues that we fight. And I think that this has always been true of Luce. And I also think that we cannot create equitable change in the community without having those most directly impacted um, by leading and informing the change. Luce is more than an organization that makes demands and holds rallies. Can you talk about your youth development program? Yeah, so um, the work that we do through our youth development program, or what we call the Youth Empowerment Program, is a partnership with Mano Mano Family Center, um, and it is what truly informs our work. So this is where we get the work directly with youth and get to know their needs, their dreams, their experiences. Uh, so through the Youth Empowerment Program, uh, youth are partnered with promotores. Uh, the promotor serves um, as a mentor, a resource navigator, an educator, and our promotores are also also come from the community that they serve. So this is a key. This is key in the positive development of youth. Um, our current promotores come from out of the leadership pipeline, in which they themselves were once youth uh, from Luth or recipients from the Youth Empowerment Program, and this has really helped us create a uh, system of peer mentorship. So if you meet some of the current promotores, you'll hear from them. You know that they started at Luth when they were like. 13, 14 years old, and now they're young adults working with youth. So we talk about history, uh, current social and political issues. We also support youth knowledge on civic engagement, advocacy. Advocacy can be um, as individual as simply learning how to advocate for yourself. When you go to the doctor, you know, as people of color, for example, often we don't know how to advocate for ourselves. Um, or we, we fear advocating for ourselves in something as simple as a doctor uh, appointment mm-hmm. So because we don't feel listened to. And so advocating for yourself really impacts your health and your longevity. Um, and it could also mean advocating for yourself and your community, such as what we do now by pushing systemic change in our school district. Um, cultural development is extremely important for youth as well particularly for youth of color who identify as first or second generation immigrants. Many of us feel disconnected from our parents and our culture, and at the same time, we feel that we are not accepted or treated as if we are part of this dominant U.S. culture due to xenophobia and racism. So when youth get empowered by their roots or their identity, they truly hope and decrease toxic stress. It's a more whole person approach rather than just working on particular issues. Speaking about cultural issues, there's been a lot of talk lately about people reading the hooks about the black experience. What kinds of books does Luce recommend youth members read to learn more about their racial and cultural heritage? Uh, yeah, that's a great question. One of the things that we do to increase knowledge and education doing it through different forms, such as reading, music, film, and oral history. We know that literature often, while it's truly powerful, at the same time, it could be a barrier. So we really have to do it at a very popular education level. And some of it may also, like I said, it will be you know, through film and music. Um, but some of the books that I, I would personally recommend based on the work that we do for the greater community, for example, are Prisons Obsolete, 
and Women, Race, Class, and Abolition Democracy by Angela Davis. We Speak for Ourselves, A Word from the Forgotten Black America by Dee Watkins. Uh, while this book was you know, written um, from the perspective of a person who has organized and has came from black communities, it is a book that truly encompasses um, the work that Luz does in terms of youth speaking for themselves and their own experience and organizing within their own community. Um, and, and we really, really appreciate that book. Uh, there's also The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander and Beyond Gender Binary by Alex Menom, uh, which is a lot more youth-friendly. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Sehanda Hernandez Lomheli, the director of Latinos Unidos Siempre, or LUS. Okay, we're, we're going to transition now and talk about the school-to-prison pipeline, which is a huge issue that LUS has been working on for years. Can you tell our listeners what that pipeline is and how you see that playing out in Salem? Yeah, so uh, it's a very, um, I have to talk for hours about this, right? But, um, you know, I'll summarize, you know, as much as possible. So the school of prison and deportation pipeline, uh, it's a term that encompasses entire systems and institutions that put black and brown as well as poor students and students who live with disability as well as undocumented students into the criminal justice system and for undocumented students into the uh, immigration system and then to deportation. So this term reflects the experiences of millions of U.S. children and youth who attend public schools and are constantly targeted by the behavioral policies and biased attitudes of their educators and administrators in their schools. This is the, a national problem, but it is also thriving here in Salem Kaiser School District, as you as you said. I work with youth directly impacted by the school to prison pipeline. Their individual experience matters, and if you were to ask them uh, when was the first time that they were arrested on school grounds or if a police officer was ever calling them, many of them will tell you that their first experience with this was in the third grade or in elementary school. Other students will tell you that they were first expelled or suspended uh, also when they were in elementary school. So as they get to middle school and then to high school, their experiences with the school disciplinary policies only worsen. Most of this is due to the behavioral disciplinary actions, such as talking back or looking like a threat to their white teachers. So, um, you know, those are the direct experiences that, that I have heard from the youth I work with. But also we want to talk about numbers, and this is often what the most people like to look at. Um, you know, um, we can look at the recent statistics that were that were that we have from the San Kaiser School District, gathered by the Office of Civil Rights of the Oregon Department of Education, and this, these are from 2015. So some of these statistics um, indicate that Latinx students, for example, composed 38.2% of the student body in 2015, but accounted for 49.1% of all expulsions. These, this has led an overrepresentation of 10.99%. For black students, there is an overrepresentation of over 50%. And for Native American students, it's also around uh, 50% overrepresentation of their total population. So these statistics are even even worse for students who live or have been diagnosed with behavioral disabilities. And we have to understand that the criminal justice system and our public education system work together by allowing our students 
people to face um, punitive consequences for issues that really should be addressed and kept within school grounds. I think this might be a good transition to go into the school resource officers issue. Do they play into the pipeline? Uh, definitely. I mean, the school resource officers are a huge part of the school-to-prison pipeline in different ways. Uh, the first and most obvious way is that they are the direct key to getting the youth into the criminal justice system. So with a police officer being in school, they don't need parental consent. They don't read them their rights. They could be arrested for very minor school breaking school rules, for minor school rules, um, and they could be taken into the juvenile department and placed in probation after being under arrest within school grounds. So that's a direct impact. And then there's also an indirect impact that is still very real. And the indirect impact comes into funding. So our schools are investing millions of dollars into putting systems of policing in within, for students rather than increasing funding for addressing the uh, educational gaps that affect students of color. And so funding and direct impact, uh, their direct experiences with police is both fueling the school-to-prison pipeline. The campaign to remove school resource officers or SROs is one that Luce has been working on for quite a few years, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, we've been addressing the school-to-prison pipeline from the very beginning of Luce, but I think the, the fight to remove SROs became a lot more um, strong this year or in 2020 uh, when we finally made the ask or demand to our school board and administration to remove police from schools. That was in relation to to George Floyd murder when everybody was speaking about police issues. Yeah, that's okay. right. And we we were also, you know, uh, following the lead of many other students uh, of color fighting the same system and who were actually um, demanding for police to be removed from their schools. Uh, it is still a, a national movement that a lot of youth from across the country are continuously combating. So Luce is demanding that, that SROs be removed, and you're also demanding that the money that pays for the police officers be spent on a whole host of, of different programs. Um, in June, you wrote those all out. Can you go over some of those things that you get money to be spent on? Yeah, so as I said before, um, the the funding of police officers in some kind of school district is part of the school to prison pipeline. And so what are what are um, suggestions were for reinvestment of those funds, um, it's about a million dollars a year, was to choose from all the different gaps that we have in our education system, which include uh, reinvesting funds into to culturally responsive in school counseling, we don't have enough counselors. We only have 11 psychologists for, you know, 42,000 students. We also uh, don't have um, enough uh, staff and educators of color. We don't have um, programs like that are culturally responsive to our students, such as ethnic studies, which, you know, is a policy that has been passed statewide um, that would allow um, our public schools to integrate this into our education. We don't have enough arts and music education, especially in schools that are predominantly of students of color and students of low income. 
We don't have um, culturally responsive after-school activities. Uh, we don't have a lot of, um, you know, things like access to healthcare in our school system. So there's definitely so many ways in which these funds could be reinvested. And besides the, re the funds that go directly to SROs, we also need a more transparent budget on uh, systemic policing. And this includes security guards, security systems, behavioral specialists, uh, all these funds that are being used to criminalize and, and target students of color um, could be uh, reinvested into, you know, supporting their well-being and their health and, you know, their positive development within our schools. Thank you for that. If you're just joining us, we're talking with Sehanda Hernandez Lomheli, the director of Latinos Unidos Siempre, or LUS. Um, Kaiser School Board and Superintendent Christy Perry have not yet made a decision about keeping SROs in mm -hmm. schools, um, but they may take input from the student-led task force into account when they do make that decision. Can you talk about Luce's role in that task force and what led Luce to leave? So first of all, I would like to clear the fact that this student task force was created by um, the, the superintendent, Chrissy Perry. Uh, that's who created the task force, and um, this this happened after we had met with her with another 10 community leaders and youth in, from the community. Um, so what we had asked her was to create a community-led process where we would, you know, talk about the removal of SROs and about all the other issues relating to the school-to-prison pipeline. And what happened is that she suddenly stopped meeting with um, our community leaders and our, our youth and created this task force. And when we were asked about our concerns about a student task force, we shared our concerns of our youth possibly being pushed out of the process. And this is exactly what happened. So three youth leaders uh, from Luz were allowed to join the task force. And from the very beginning, they were othered for their civic involvement in the community. They were often referred to as the loose students, and all other students of the task force were referred to as some kinds of district students. And you can clearly see this on the letter delivered to the board where our, our, the youth that are involved with loose are referred to as loose students. Um, they were bullied by the school administration that was there. One of the, the adults present, who was also uh, a police officer for more than 18 years, told one of the youth that he was close-minded for not wanting police in schools and that he was close-minded after this youth shared that their trauma with police. And um, while the task force was presented as being student-led, we know that the information and solutions were presented by the administrators. In fact, um, the task force recommendation to the board was very similar to the solutions after, often expressed by administration that I personally have met with. So um, the youth that, you know, were part of that, of that task force really never felt listened to. And so they didn't really choose to leave. What happened is that they were eventually kicked out for refusing to sign a confidentiality agreement. And what happened with this confidentiality agreement is that the student task force, or some of the members, I believe like three or four of the members, met in secrecy uh, with Chris Baldridge, the director for security and student safety, and together they drafted a contract to target loose youth. This happened after we published a demand to Christy Perry to make the student task force 
more safe during COVID-19 because, again, the students were meeting in person, like 20 people in a room because there were 16 students and, like, four adults, and um, they were not fully socially distancing. And when the loose youth decided to join virtually because they were worried about their health, you know, the virtual engagement was very inaccessible. They were being muted during the conversations. The task force would get muted so they wouldn't hear what was going on. The conversations were not fully engaging when they were virtually joining the meetings. And so this was kind of a, the demand was around COVID-19 and not about bringing out the information that was being said in the task force. But then the confidentiality agreement and the youth refused to sign this because they felt that they were being targeted and they also did not want to sign something without parental present, and so they were kicked out. And so the youth that were involved in the task force were extremely emotionally and mentally exhausted from attending these meetings. They didn't feel that they were going anywhere, and, you know, they were just eventually kicked out. And we know from this experience is that the administration actually created division among students of color, and it pushed out students directly impacted by the criminal justice system. Let me see if I understand this correctly. Loose youth raised issues about COVID, and the district came back and asked them to sign a confidentiality agreement, which said, it's my understanding that agreement said that youth were not supposed to talk about about what took place in those meetings. Yeah, that's right. And this kind of led to some protests against Christy Perry. Um, can you talk about Rufus's dissatisfaction with her? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's just, it, it has really shown that what Christy Perry often does is that she talks about equity and says the right things. But what happened with the student task force is really, really a, a true view of how the district has handled creating equity and pushing for change within the district um, because this, this task force really targeted students most directly affected and it left them out of the process. So for us, this is systemic racism and it has always been part of our schools and it hasn't been fully addressed yet. There are some things that have, some great changes that have been made throughout the years, but it has only been done because of the community push and community work that has been happening in the community. It hasn't been because of the administration. And so we are um, really exhausted from the fact that we hear that Chrissy Perry is being recognized for, for being such an amazing superintendent when all that has been happening throughout last year and this year is that our students have been ignored, our students have been pushed out, and, you know, the issue around the school-to-prison pipeline and SROs hasn't been addressed, even though we were promised that it would be addressed in August of 2020. How is we going to keep campaigning on the SRO issue? Uh, you know, right now we're doing a lot of work. We're currently uh, collecting data from our students um, in the school district, uh, from all students. We hear from everybody, and um, we spend about a month doing surveys that took like 30 minutes to each survey was like 30 minutes long. So we really are trying to get input from 
the students so that we can then, you know, show our, the school district, hey, look, this is what we, we, fa- we found. This is data gathered by students, for students, and for the community. Um, and we hope that they, they do, you know, take this data seriously. Uh, we also will continue doing direct action and organizing and education and outreach to the youth who are directly impacted. The work's not going to stop. Um, we, even though recommendations have been made uh, by the student task force, we know that this recommendation is not uh, reflective of the experiences of youth who have been directly affected by the school prison pipeline. So the work definitely will continue. And um, the youth are, more than anything, they're very energized to continue organizing and continue fighting the system. Okay, thank you. It's my understanding that the task force, the student-led one, is calling for for, um, SROs, school resource officers, to stay in schools, but to have more training, mentorship, and accountability. From the very beginning, the information we were showing the district was that training doesn't do anything when it comes to law enforcement. Training only increases budgets for law enforcement, but it doesn't have any actual statistical change for communities most impacted. So um, my recommendation from the very beginning, based on data and based on experiences, has been to remove SROs completely and reinvest those funds into supporting uh, students, you know, especially in creating um, systems that allow for a more meaningful engagement of students who who often get into trouble in school. Okay, thank you. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Sandra Hernandez-Lomeli, Executive Director of Latinos Unidos Siempre. We're going to move on to the next community listening engagement that the district plans to hold this month or next month on the broader issue of student discipline and safety. Will Luce be participating in that process and what kind of input do you you hope to provide? Uh, Yeah, Luce has been invited to participate in the process, um, but unfortunately, um, they are only allowing a certain amount of people to be involved, um, and the only thing uh, that we want to do is uh, have a space for youth to to truly be involved and engaged. So we're hoping that Luz can help navigate the process and inform the process and inform the solutions that come out of the summit. School board elections are coming up in May. There'll be four open seats. I know that you have a nonprofit status and you're unable to participate directly in political campaigns, but will Luz be able to play any kind of role? Yeah, the way in which we plan to um, activate our youth with this is by creating uh, public forums for the school board candidates where we will be asking them the same questions and asking them to commit to the same things. But Luz will definitely engage in that manner and is in, in making sure that the youth and community hears um, where school board member um, candidates stand on the issues that are most important to the youth. And we also encourage, you know, young people and, and everybody to just engage themselves with elections and also encouraging people in our community to vote um, because, you know, during these school board elections, voting is very, very low. And so uh, increasing voting in low 
for communities that usually don't vote is another thing we can get involved with as well. Okay. The last four years under the Trump administration have been challenging ones for racial and immigrant justice um, issues and people and groups. Um, what are some of the challenges that Luz has faced in the last four years, and how do you think those will change under the new presidential administration? Do you see any hope? Yeah, this is a great question because um, I think it, it touches a lot on what we do. Um, going back to, you know, what we do is very local, and I don't think that it will have any um, impact uh, negatively or positively. I think things will remain the same for the fight uh, since we are, you know, trying to change things that happen within the Salem Kaiser School District. Um, but I think also when it comes to systemic issues, before Trump, a lot of these issues were here. And during Trump, they were still here, and I think they still will be here when Biden takes full control of the of office. Um, and I think particularly, you know, knowing that Biden uh, has been part of the Obama administration as well, um, we saw that, you know, there were millions of deportations under that administration as well as under Trump. And so I think that... Um, Definitely our community will continue fighting and fighting for systemic change. That's not going to stop with this administration. Um, the only hope or change I hope to see <laughs> is less direct attacks for communities of color who are doing direct action. Uh, I am not 100% hopeful of that. I don't know if that's actually going to happen. But as we saw last year with the Black Lives Matter um, uprisings, we saw a lot of the groups being brutally attacked by police forces and by the military. And I'm hoping that that doesn't continue happening under this administration. Although uh, we also know the reality is that the Vice President Kamala Harris has a long history with law enforcement. Um, so hopefully these things do happen, that they do change. Our view is that systemic change will continue. We have to fight for systemic change for years to come. And one other impacts that we've been facing, obviously, is the COVID-19 pandemic. How has the pandemic impacted youth of color in Salem, and what is Luce's position on school reopening? We definitely saw a huge impact um, on the community. As, as you may already know, the communities most impacted by COVID-19 are, are working-class communities of color, and we're definitely seeing this in our in our base. It has redistributed um, almost $35,000 uh, of direct assistance to the community um, because we saw the need for this during the pandemic, people losing jobs, uh, uh, family members passing away from COVID, uh, family members being sick, so having to lose income because of this. Um, and so we've seen a lot of increasing depression and anxiety um, in so many different aspects of the youth's lives that have been, have been touched by COVID-19. And so we understand this as a huge issue, and we also know that reopening schools and having school uh, youth together in schools again uh, it will increase the chance of them getting COVID-19 and taking it to their families or vice versa. And so we are completely in a position of schools reopening until all people get vaccinated, until all people get in, uh, are immune. 
And I know that the plan is with teachers getting vaccinated first, but I don't think that's where the solution ends. I think that's where it starts. Teachers need to get vaccinated, but so do the working class parents of these students, and so do the students before schools reopen. I did want to give you chance to talk about anything that we did not cover that you think people need to know about? I think we covered a lot, and I think if folks want to get involved with our fight, they can visit our Instagram, which is at Loose Youth, or our Facebook page, which is Loose Salem, and Loose is L-U-S. Get involved and get informed on what's going on. Thank you, Sandra, for being with us today. I'm Sister Rojas. I have been speaking with Sandra Hernandez-Lomeli, Executive Director of Latino Unidos Siempre. Sandra Hernandez-Lomeli, Executive Director of Latino Unidos Siempre.